I just want to tell you that I, I have always loved Christmas. Uh, for me, it, it, it's always been a really wonderful time of the year. And I, I, I know I'm not alone in this, but I, I love the lights, uh, the music of the season, uh, the decorations in our home and on our home and on everyone else's homes. I love our Christmas tree, the special foods we get to enjoy, and just the, the gathering of family and friends. Um, but most of all, truly, most of all, I love, love, love the opportunity that Christmas affords us to contemplate again the amazing mystery of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Having been uh, being born of the Virgin Mary, having his birth heralded and attended by angels, uh, being sought out and worshipped by the most improbable people. It's just a wonderful story in the literal sense that it's a story that's it's always left me filled with wonder. And every year from my earliest childhood, it's it's been my great privilege to be able to rehearse and to celebrate that story uh, with various communities of people who know and love Jesus, people like you. So I'm especially glad that you've joined with this community of believers in Jesus called LifePoint Church on this Christmas Eve to begin think and to sing with us about God sending his son Jesus Christ to be our friend, to be our savior, to be our leader. This evening I'd like to just take a few minutes uh, to share two verses with you that are kind of tucked into the New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul to the churches of the Roman province of Galatia. Uh, This book is known appropriately as Galatians and these two verses uh, tell us the entire Christmas story in in very few words, the Christmas story in a nutshell. Um, so why don't we read them aloud together, and, and you can remain seated as we do this. Let's just read together. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, uh, somebody, somewhere, sometime, uh, said that the seven is the perfect number. So this evening I'd like to share with you seven simple observations about Christmas that come right out of these two verses. At the center of these two verses is uh, that five-word declaration, God sent forth his Son. God sent forth his son. Do you see it there? So let's put the emphasis for the moment on the word God. And that tells us that it was God's idea to send his son from heaven to earth to become one of us. You know, sometimes we, we can make the mistake of thinking of, of Jesus as, a, as God with a smile on his face, kind of the, the smiley emoji. But God the Father is God with maybe a frown of disappointment or even anger on his face. Uh, Kind of a cosmic good cop, bad cop view of God. The Apostle John wrote, This is what love is. It's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the means by which our sins are forgiven. So when God sent his son to us, 
it was entirely an expression of his love for us, his mercy and grace toward us. So Christmas is, is first of all, God saying to us, I love you. Second, notice who it was that God sent. God sent forth his son. So let's put the emphasis this time on his son. It may seem repetitive and even unnecessary to say, but we need to be crystal clear about who it was that was born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. God sent forth his son. He sent the one who is his son. We have a hard time expressing eternity, but think of it this way, that God, that, that Jesus was God's son in eternity past. He is God's son now, and he will continue to be, he will still be God's son in eternity future. He, Jesus, is eternal God. We're able to sing in the words of Silent Night, Jesus, Lord at thy birth, because he was, and he is, and he always will be the Lord, the Lord of lords. You know, during the days of his ministry on earth, Jesus was acutely conscious of having been sent. He frequently spoke of God the Father In these words, him who sent me, him who sent me. For example, in John 6, 38, he said to his disciples, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And on another occasion, he said, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Third, notice with me that God sent forth his son when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. What does that expression, the fullness of time, mean? Honest answer? I don't know. I don't know what it means, but there seems to be a lot of people who think they do. In fact, if you pick up any of the most popular commentaries on the Bible um, and read what they have to say about this phrase, the fullness of time, chances are good that uh, you will read that it has something to do with the fact that the Romans had built a wonderful system of roads and highways so that the message of the gospel could be freely taken along those roads to the entire known world. And as they tell it, you might get the impression that no one in all the prior history of mankind had ever been able to travel until the Romans came along and invented it. And what you're left with is the implication that the sovereign, all-powerful creator God of the universe was just sitting on his throne in heaven waiting for the Romans to build their roads. But here's what I do know. I know that I can't know. The precise meaning of the fullness of time is not something any of us can know or understand because of this, that it is something that only God the Father knows. He alone is sovereignly directing the course of history itself. In fact, 
The Apostle Paul used the same expression, the fullness of time, in the ultimate sense when he wrote to the church in Ephesus that, that God has a purpose and a plan for the fullness of time, which is to unite everything in heaven and on earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ. God knows the end from the beginning, and he knows everything in between. So, so he alone has the right, he alone has the authority to decide when the times for anything on his agenda will have come to their fullness, when the time is the right time. And in the same way, we know, because the Bible tells us so, that God will send Jesus again, this time to bring his bride, the church, to the place that he's been preparing for us. But God, and God alone, knows when that will be. Jesus himself said these amazing words, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the fullness of time is when God says the time is fulfilled. Not a second earlier and not a second later. Fourth, Paul says that God's son was born of a woman. You might say, well, well, everyone knows that. Everyone who's born has a mother. And of course, you'd be right about that. What Paul is saying and what is important for us to realize is that Jesus, the son of God, became human. He left the splendor of heaven and entered into our humanity in human flesh. And this is the mystery, the wonder that the theologians call the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. He is the Son of God, and he became the Son of Mary, his mother. He's fully divine. He's fully human. And the Bible says elsewhere that, that in the person of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. Fifth, this verse tells us, that God's Son was born under the law. God designed that His Son would be born into the nation of Israel, to whom God had given the law through Moses. Jesus subjected Himself to that law, and He came to fulfill it. And here's, here's one of the most remarkable things about Jesus. He was under the law, but He was not under the control of sin. So in His humanity... Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. Sixth, Paul tells us that God's Son was sent to redeem those who were under the law. And again, the Bible says something that I found to be surprising when I first understood it. It's, it's something that we ought to consider very seriously with regard to our relationship to law, yours and mine. Specifically, it says that whatever law you're under, whether it's a religious law, whether it's a criminal law, or even the law of your own conscience, any violation of that law will condemn you before God. It's amazing. The law brings about the awareness of sin, of inadequacy, of our utter inability to not only meet God's standards, but even to meet our own. Honest self-examination reveals to all of us that we cannot and will not ever measure up. 
to the perfection that a holy and just God requires, let alone the perfection that our own ideals and standards demand. And that's the predicament that God sent his son to solve. He came to redeem us, it says. And what does that mean? It means that he came to purchase our freedom from this utter slavery to sin that we find ourselves in. In our weakness, we're we're helpless to solve our own problem. And yet, because he is human, he can empathize with our weakness. And because he is God, he can do something about it. The Bible says that Jesus took our sin upon himself, bore all of it in his own body on the cross, and by his death broke the chains that held us in slavery to sin, broke the power that sin and death held over us. He redeemed us, how? By dying our death. He satisfied God's wrath toward our sin, so that's turned away, and he provided the way for our sins to be forgiven. But there's more. He didn't just leave it at that. In fact, this verse tells us, seventh and finally, that God's purpose through his son was not only to forgive us, but to go a step further and to adopt us as his children, to adopt us into his family. That was his plan all along. He sent his son to overcome the barrier that stood between us and and him so that he could add us to his family and relate to us as his children. You know, as I was preparing this, the thought struck me that we often talk about God forgiving our sins, but we don't spend as much time talking about the fact that he adopted us into his family. It's possible, I imagine, that he could have said, I forgive you, and meant that, and our sins would have been forgiven, but just moved along. We're okay now. Your sins are forgiven. See ya. But he didn't do that. He redeemed us so that he could adopt us as his children. When, when Jesus, God's son, came into the world, the vast majority of his own people didn't recognize him, didn't receive him. But the Bible says that to all who did receive him, who who believed in his name, he gave the right, the privilege, to become his children, the children of God. And you can receive him and all that he came to bring right now in this moment before you go on to all that the rest of this evening may hold, by simply transferring your trust from your endless, weak efforts and utter inability to please God, to the redemption that that Jesus Christ, God's Son, accomplished for you once and for all at the cross. And you can leave here tonight knowing that not only are your sins forgiven, but that you are a child of God once and for all, forever and ever, and you have eternal 
life. Let's pray together. Lord, what incredible truth this is that you sent your son to redeem us and then to adopt us. Lord, help us not to to bypass that opportunity to neglect so great a salvation, so great a redemption. And Lord, I pray that uh, this would be a year when we would say to you, in the words of the old carol, O come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for you. I know I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And so I believe in you, Jesus, and I ask that you would come into my life, forgive my sins, adopt me into the family of God, make me the person that you had in mind for me to be when you first created me. And I pray it in the name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen.